Hello everyone and welcome to our first Manybody Physics podcast. We will discuss with the young researchers in the sciences dealing with complex matter. We will explain how things become more interesting when putting together many small things like atoms or neurons to form something entirely new. We will touch on aspects of different areas of physics, like quantum physics, the hype around new technologies arising from these entirely different laws happening at the atomic level. Also, high energy physics, the science of finding out about the very fundamentals of the universe. And we will also touch on environmental physics, where complex phenomena lead, for example, to the global climate change we observe today. We will primarily talk with young researchers who just start with their career in science. And we will also talk with them about what they learn about how to actually do science. How does it work to find out new things about nature? How can one find questions worth asking? And how does science work as a social human endeavor? These are questions we want to find out more in this series of podcasts. I'm Alexander Schuckert, one of the people behind this effort, and I will be the host for today's podcast. For our first episode, we have invited Asier Pinheiro Orioli, a theoretical quantum physicist currently working at the Joint Institute for Laboratory Astrophysics in Boulder, Colorado. He works on various aspects of quantum physics, from how complex many-body systems evolve in time to how one could use their strange properties in future quantum computers. I've known Asier from the very first year of university. He was actually one of the tutors in my theoretical physics classes. So since then, we have published technical physics papers together, and we also stood next to each other on stage during theater shows. Yeah, so Asier is the person who I call when I have difficult life and work decisions to make. So that's why it's a very great pleasure to have him here on our very first podcast episode. And I hope you will enjoy listening to us discussing about the things we care about. Hello, Asier. Thanks for joining our first podcast. Hi, Alex. It would be cool if you could uh, quickly introduce yourself. I mean, I know you already quite well. We've known each other for years now. Oh, there are things you don't know about me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe they will come out today. <laughs> maybe, or maybe not. Maybe I give you an exclusive. Um, so, yeah, okay. My name is Asier. I am from originally from Spain, from San Sebastián. I am currently a postdoc in physics at Chila Institute in Boulder, Colorado. Yeah, so could say many things, but... Generically, I'm working on quantum many-body systems, and we will see more about that probably during this hour or so. Yeah, I guess that will become clearer as we go along. I mean, you're also part of our outreach effort that we are bringing into a new level here with the podcast. So maybe it would be quite cool if you could discuss quickly what the goals of this uh, podcast series will be or what the things could be that we explore. Well, I mean, I think you could start saying what you think, but in principle, it's still a project, an open project. We have a bunch of ideas of things that we are interested in. And so from my side, I, I am interesting. I am very interested in talking to people, to people like postdocs, PhD students and stuff like that, um, that are currently working on, on different projects and knowing a bit more about the persons. So what, what it is that they why they do what they do, how they feel about it, how they go around their day. Uh, so knowing a bit more than the human aspect, right? And that's kind of also what you started with Oscar and Beatrice in, in the website, similar, at least. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think yeah that sums it up quite nicely that, yeah, we really yeah try to put a spotlight on the people and because they are, because the people are really passionate about what they're doing, talking about the people also contains the science itself because it's such a large part of the people but also contains other aspects um, like what it means to work in science and how the daily life of people really looks like and what the experiences are that they made on a human level too because that's yeah these are things which are not very often discussed when very famous people talk about science 
perhaps one one way to put it is all those things that you want to tell your family but you don't know how yes exactly yeah yeah it's uh if you if you had a very long christmas time chat uh these are the things you could maybe talk about <laughs> yeah exactly yeah yeah no that's really that's that puts it really nicely yeah yeah so maybe we can we can start with uh with you today mm -hmm. all right all right fine <laughs> <laughs> fine so, if you um, want <laughs> <laughs> now that we're already here we could we might as well i mean you already said you were working at gila right now um mm -hmm. so can, can you maybe say a, a couple of words about what gila is i mean i've i've uh, visited gila as well in march uh, for a week so i mm -hmm. i have a bit of, bit of an idea but maybe you can you can you can yeah explain it in your own words well so gila is a, a physics institute that actually has different research directions and originally the name is actually joint institute of laboratory astronomics but nobody uses the actual so people just call it gila because it's not anymore about astronomy and in fact the things that i work on this let's say the whole quantum world all that is very strong at Gila, and it's one of the reasons why it is known for for it. And it's kind of part of the university, part NIST, which is the National Institute of Standards and Technology. So anyway, it's a place for fundamental research, and I know specifically in the things that I do, it's very strong on experiments of cold quantum gases and other stuff that I don't know so much about. <laughs> <laughs> And so you, you were saying it's a collaboration between the university and, and NIST. How does that come together, this fundamental research and the goals of NIST, which is, I guess, metrology and finding ways to measure things really precisely. So how do these things fit together? Yeah, okay, that's, that's, that's nice. I can, say, I can say better why, so how the collaboration with, or the relationship to NIST affects it because it gets money from NIST. Uh, or from funding sources that are honestly i don't know the intricacies i'm just talking very high level yeah. definitely the national laboratories have although it's also fundamental research they are i would say more oriented toward specific applications i would say and one big one you mentioned is quantum metrology or metrology in general which is basically the science of measuring things super precisely it's that's why it's called the national institute of standards Right, the standards mean the fundamental constants, for example, how what, what's their actual value. So what would be an example for a fundamental constant? Right, so the speed of light, for example. So fundamental constants are certain numbers that certain parameters that enter in all our theories and that uh, we have to measure because we don't we cannot calculate we, which it's like an in, something that we put in, into the theory from the outside. And knowing that value very precisely allows you to predict other things just as precisely. That's, that sets the limit of how precise you can be in your predictions also. Yes. And as far as I understood, uh, just last year or something like that, people have redefined the SI system of units to, to be only related to these fundamental constants, right? So that you can fix these numbers once and for all. And then you can measure everything in, in terms of these constants. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. I honestly don't know much about it. I, I, I saw a talk by, by Bill Phillips on that, and, and it's very interesting. But yeah, I'm not, so, I'm not such an expert on, on that. <laughs> what, we do, what we do try, let's say where Gila comes in, I would say, in, in part at least, or how it collaborates, is this new frontier or goal of quantum metrology. And the important part is the quantum part. Which is, let's say, it's one of the handful of 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 quantum technologies that are coming, but one that doesn't get the headlines so often. Like everybody has heard about quantum computing, but there are other applications of, let's say, the 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 weird laws of quantum mechanics that are less known, but that actually will have, potentially will have a, an er a high impact much earlier. And one of them is quantum metrology, which is basically taking advantage of quantum properties of atoms and matter to break through barriers of precision. And the way it works, do you want me to explain? Yes, it would be great, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the way it works uh, is the following. Imagine you have a bunch of atoms and you are measuring some property. Like, let's say you're measuring the position 
or the or the velocity. For those who have had quantum mechanics, they know that there are certain limits in the precision of how, uh, into how precise can you measure the two simultaneously. Yes, and these uh, and these limits are really set by nature itself, right? It's not it's not that uh, if we could build some measurement tool which would measure more precisely, we we could do it better. But this is really nature telling us you can't do it better, right? Yeah, yeah, basically. And there is that limit, but of course that limit is uh, is hard to reach anyway. But anyway, so imagine you were you were to measure let's say the position of an atom. The atom in general is not going to be at exactly one position, at exactly one point in space. So every time you measure, you measure it at a slightly different position. Let's say you prepare the experiment always in exactly the same way, and you measure it a lot of times. So what you get is then a string of of measurement outcomes, a string of numbers that tell you the position. And so that's going to give you basically a distribution of where of, of where the atom so it's going to give you a probability distribution of saying okay with this amount of priority this atom is, is in this position but it could also be a little bit to the right so it's like instead of being a pointed space it's more like a like a like like an envelope right it's like a imagine a, a gauss curve right for those that know about it so let me let me interrupt here maybe for, for for one second because I mean this is one of the deep concepts of quantum mechanics right that you can be in a superposition of different states and maybe people have heard about qubits where you can have a zero or one or a superposition of the two and I guess what you were mentioning is exactly the same thing but just for position that the atom can be in a superposition of different places mm -hmm. and and so it can be in different places at the same time but what it actually means is that if you measure multiple times you get different answers and as you said you get only the probability distribution mm -hmm. and so in principle we said that you have a certain uncertainty for so that's what you would call this the fact that you don't always measure the same place uh, you have a certain uncertainty a certain noise in the position but you also have a certain noise in the momentum in the velocity let's say And those two are bound together. And so imagine if you wanted to measure the position more precisely, then one way that you could do it is, okay, you give up on precision in, in velocity, which maybe you don't care about. And in exchange, you are able to measure more and more precisely the position. This is leading me to the discussion of squeezing, if you know uh, where I'm going. But basically, it's an interchange. It, it's a, it's a, it's a trade-off, right? It's a trade-off where you give up what you don't care about and you you gain what you care about. And so the way this relates now to quantumness is that you can, let's say, engineer such trade-offs when you have a bunch of particles. And so imagine instead of one particle, now you have two. And so for two atoms, you can, well, the, the, the aim is then to prepare a specific state, a specific superposition, as you were saying, where the uncertainty in the variable, in, in one of the variables, is reduced and is increasing the, in another one, which you don't care about, as I was saying. So in a sense, it's like, it's, one way of seeing it, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of correlated noise. If the atoms were independent, then every it's like flipping a coin. Every time you measure, imagine each atom can be zero or one. Now it's not position anymore. Every time you measure, maybe you find 50, 50%, zero or one on each one. But the atoms behave in an independent way. Now, if the atoms are correlated, then you might find that either you find always zero, zero, or always one, one. And so that changes the noise distributions, basically, that I was talking about. I'm not sure if I make myself clear. I think it's the first time that I tried to explain quantum meteorology. Yeah, maybe you can explain a bit more about um, how at GILA people are trying to use these correlated states for... For metrology or what what kind of examples physical systems are there which realize so uh, two main examples and things that i personally work on are one atoms in optical lattices and cavity atoms inside a, uh, an optical cavity so let's say maybe let's start with the second one in the second one what you have so a cavity is basically two mirrors in front of each other and maybe you have done this experiment in some in some <laughs> elevator to see yourself at infinity in the in the mirrors but basically what happens is that what people do is they shine light from inside 
and so the the light gets trapped inside the the two, between the two mirrors and it starts bouncing off and off of them many times until at some point it it escapes but before it does it has bounced like i don't know millions of times that's the the light part but then what you do is you put atoms inside that cavity and the atoms now interact with the light much stronger than if they were outside the cavity the outside the two mirrors because now the light has many chances let's say to interact with the atoms because it's bouncing off of the mirrors all the time so it's like so so in physical terms we would say that the light matter coupling is stronger and so what that well i mean that that kind of setup is used for many things but among others you can use it or that's one of one of the efforts that we are trying to do is to use it to prepare this type of strange entangled states between the atoms because uh, with this light, you can allow the atoms basically to effectively interact with each other. And when they interact with each other, they they start getting correlated, entangled, as, as we were saying before. And when that happens, certain measurement outcomes, certain measurements are more precise than others. And so everything you have to do, <laughs> and it sounds easy, is to prepare, to make them interact in such a way that they get to an entangled state that has the properties that you want. It's easy to say, it's hard to do because it's an awful lot of particles. It's hard to control them properly. There are many errors. There are many experimental imperfections. And so, so they're like the, the art, let's say. And so one thing that we do is to try to, to find new protocols, new ways of doing that better. And at the same time, we collaborate with experiments at Gila that try to implement those ideas. And so on the one hand side, it's relatively fundamental research, uh, relatively exploratory. On the other, on the other hand, it's a way, it, it has this outlook of if we do it, if it works, it would be, it could be a nice milestone in, in achieving better precision. And let me say that better precision sounds like, okay, you just want to, you just want to have two more decimal places in some weird constant. But it's not that better precision is actually one of our, it, it has a lot of application. One thing is, for example, you know, recently we are able to, to detect gravitational waves. One, one reason for that is that uh, the level of precision that has been achieved with interferometers is, is extremely high. But if we could push those boundaries of precision even further, we might even be able to, to measure things that so far only people in, in high energy physics uh, try to measure like what is dark matter how does it interact with other particles that's one I, I think for me that's one of the most exciting prospects the the possibility of saying something about the fundamental the fundamental components of our universe making very precise measurements yeah and and maybe that it's worth expanding a bit on that i also find that really exciting because i mean what high energy physicists do is they they put a lot of effort into extremely large experiments like the large hadron collider where you have a a machine which costs billions of dollars to smash particles at an enormous energy into each other to then look at what products come out and so you probe physics at a very large energy scale what you were just mentioning is basically you can look at the same physics by looking at things at a very low energy, but just doing that to a very, very high precision because at a very high precision, also very, you know, effects which are actually not very important become important because you, you want to know it so precisely, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so the idea is, let's say there there is dark matter here around us or whatever dark matter is, Let's say it interacts in some way that we don't know yet with the matter that we do know, like atoms. And if that's the case, that interaction, that way of interacting is going to have an effect on those atoms. Now, the effect is so small that, I mean, you don't notice it, like otherwise we would have measured it already. But still, it is there. It must be somewhere. And so if you're measuring some property of an atom, like an energy difference between two atomic states, which is a very common thing to measure, then the value of that, you can predict with our current theories, 
to a certain degree at least. And then you can go and measure it. And so, so far everything seems, I think, at least uh, agrees pretty well with quantum, with the quantum theory. But if you keep pushing the boundaries of how precise you can measure that, eventually you're going to see your model failing because it is not accounting for whatever else is out there that is interacting with that atom. So that's the way that you can start detecting things that we don't know of yet. Like you need to use the thing that you know to detect the unknown because it's in the failure of our current models to actually be very precise in, in how the things that we know, like an atom, should be that you that you find an opportunity to discover new particles or new forces or whatever it is. Yes. So um, that, that's a really exciting application for having really precise metrology. Isn't it also that metrology is supposed to be one of the first real, real life applications of quantum technologies uh, compared to, let's say, a large scale quantum computer, which is still very, very far out, out of range? But quantum metrology could be useful a lot earlier or is already useful. Um, so do you know a couple of applications in that direction of more maybe everyday technical importance? So I could say GPS, but I doubt that because so as far I mean, as far as I know, for example, so the, G, the current GPS systems, I think the satellites, I think they use some sort of atomic clock. Yeah, I think the cesium hyperfine. Yeah. Clock. Uh, but I think that close, compared to the state-of-the-art clocks, like here at Gila, that, that, that clock is very bad <laughs> uh, in precision compared to what, you know, the limits of what we have achieved. But that clock ha has the advantage that it is understood well enough and there has been enough development that you can actually put it on a satellite, which is not trivial. And so you cannot do that with the current clocks that we have. You were mentioning um, what, what you have in these atomic lattice clocks or cavity clocks are many atoms interacting with each other. And I guess that's where uh, the connection to more fundamental questions around what happens if you do that, if you have many atoms interacting with each other, um, comes into play, um, right? So um, what what are the questions that, that you're interested in in that respect? Or how, how does that link in more? Well, um, I think I kind of hinted at it before uh, when I was saying that preparing the states in these, preparing the atoms in these entangled states, it's not easy. And not only is it not easy, but these states are extremely fragile to little noises, little imperfections. And so, well, that's also pretty much the same reason why a quantum computer is so hard to build. Yeah. Except here, the <laughs> the aim is perhaps more attainable but so yeah though, though it's extremely hard to do so one thing that we try to do is to think of new ways of doing it using perhaps different types of systems like different types of atoms or taking advantage uh, you're trying to construct like a castle and you are using certain certain elements certain pieces yeah and and you're like okay this is very hard to prepare with these pieces um, why don't we try other ones, right? And then it's like, oh, look, I have a piece here that could work as a wall, and this gives some stability to the castle. Well, it's similar with uh, with the atoms. Uh, we are using, we are, usually the way it starts it is you make these models as simple as possible because it's very hard to understand uh, these complex systems. And once you have done that, you have some basic ideas for, for the thing that you want to achieve. Like, oh, this is a basic idea on how to prepare such an entangled state. Okay, but this basic idea has a lot of problems because it's simple, it's nice, but at the same time, um, it has very obvious flaws because it's a simplification. So one thing that you can do is to say, okay, let's start taking into account all the things that can go wrong. Let's try to circumvent them by modifying the model, for example by making the atoms interact in a different way or by using external uh, other knobs like you know i'm gonna add an, a magnetic field i'm gonna add a, an optical lattice i'm gonna so you start playing with the things that you have a hand to get 
uh, away from trouble. Uh, but then again, you start the new the new the new proposals have the problems of their own. So you start it's it's like a, a cat and mouse uh, game where you try to optimize something, but every step that you take uh, could make things harder again. And so you can do that, or you can play a different game, which is I don't like Lego. I want to play a different game, and so you go to a different platform, or you go to a totally different way of doing things. Like one thing that I am working on is uh, for often we hear about qubits, right? Qubits as the elemental, you know, building blocks of quantum computers and stuff like that. In in physical terms, a qubit is a two-level system, meaning there are two degrees of freedom. Uh, usually, we say zero and one, and so almost all the ideas revolve around zeros and ones, uh, but in the quantum realm right now. One thing that I am trying to do is to put, is to say, okay, atoms are rarely two-level systems. You can make them behave like like that, but they are more complex. And so complexity, when you make things more complicated, the word that we use in physics is to say uh, everything becomes more rich in the sense that you have more possibilities. So what I'm trying to do is to say, Okay, what happens if instead of a two-level system, I have a, a three-level system or four, five, six? So what happens when you have more degrees of freedom, where your fundamental unit is not a qubit, it's not a coin with two sides, but it's a, it's a dice with six, for example? Yeah. How does that change the game? What what new possibilities are? And as you can imagine, I mean, the problem was hard enough before. Now it's even harder. But at the same time, the so the that's but the dream, let's say is to say, okay, I take a more complicated system, uh, like a six-level system, uh, a dice, right? But I make it, I try to find within that complex system something that is simple enough that I can understand it, but that at the same time, because of this, because of the fundamental unit being different, it's going to behave, it's going to have certain advantages that the coin, the two-level system, didn't have. Right, and so that's a dream. I'm not saying that I have attained it, but that would be the dream. Um, I can already tell you that in the things that I do, I mean, it's a very unexplored field, I would say. Um, and I think there are a lot of interesting phenomena that can come out of that. I'm having a hard time trying to actually find, trying to understand what's going on. Like I find some interesting phenomena, but even the simplest cases are, are, are hard. And, and you know, I have to fight the whole time. I, uh, I have to find the balance the whole time between understanding a little bit and not getting crazy because I don't understand so much. Yes, I guess that really nicely links into the question of, you know, how, how the scientific progress uh, process really works. <laughs> because you were saying here you're really in this kind of border between looking at something so complicated that it's impossible to grasp or even um, ask a well-defined question. And the other extreme being uh, just doing things which are quite obvious, um, where you maybe, you know, change one parameter here, one parameter there, and but not really asking a very big question anymore or something very, um, something which could make a lot of progress. And maybe these are the sort of problems which we would more call an engineering problem where you take a couple of known things and put them, combine them in a new way. And you can, you can play around a bit with the combinational parameters, but you pretty much know already what will come out. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think, I think you are, you're referring to a, a previous conversation of us about, about progress in science, but at the same time about, so this engineering, maybe get into that first, maybe this engineering aspect is interesting because I never know exactly how to, define what an engineering problem is but i would say like i would go along the lines of what you said that the problem is more well defined the parameters are better known and let's say the scope or, or the the unknowns are, are fewer and so and often you're trying to optimize something and and i have talked to some friends about this that it seems to me that the field of quantum technologies is or or will be moving more and more towards what people call quantum engineering. We know already, we have a bunch of ideas on how to do things, a bunch of basic ideas on you know how to build a quantum computer, there are a bunch of ideas, but now we wanna actually make it work. So we have to start solving the actual problems that are ahead. 
that 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 impede us from from achieving that goal and that that becomes slowly more and more an engineering problem i mean i don't know how where the boundary is exactly and you know it's a naming thing but but it it poses the question of uh, how much room is there and i ask this myself all the time how much room is there for really new fundamental ideas on different ways to do to achieve these goals of quantum metrology or quantum computing or whatever so if somebody gonna come up like let's imagine a multi-level system let's imagine i find a, a super nice idea that actually using a 10-level system is much better and then suddenly everybody turns to that to such systems because although they look complicated actually you can do things much better somehow something is more robust for some reason now that would be i mean that would be great for me but uh, <laughs> i see it as very unlikely because um such systems are are even more complicated to are even more difficult to control than than the the qubits that we want to create um, and so i don't honestly i don't i like you know i want to dream about it a little bit but I, I don't know if I see that happening. And like that, you can ask about other platforms in quantum computing and things like that. Like, is it is it mostly any, like at least from an experimental point of view, is it is it mostly a, 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 an engineering problem or is there something more? Like there are certainly fundamental questions, yeah, like about quantum algorithms and and, and that kind of stuff. But that's not what we are doing. Yeah, it's hard to to draw to draw that border. But uh, maybe to come back to your example of ten level systems and it. You know, you starting to explore that area, and it looks like it's very difficult and even more difficult than what people are using. Um, but isn't that also what you could say? What you, what you could have said about quantum computation twenty years ago, when you know the first people came up with proposals how you could implement an entangling gate or things like this, um, where you know maybe they could have thought, uh, I mean, this is so difficult to implement. It will probably always be easier to just build a classical computer and simulate the the quantum algorithm rather than really trying to build the quantum computer. Maybe this is even one one aspect of of science in general that you don't really know where it's going to go. And even if you think it's it's too hard, maybe someone else has a really good idea um, for making it a bit easier, and then suddenly it becomes possible. So don't you think that in this case that could also be true? Or? Well, here's the thing: you never know what you're gonna find. I I can see both 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 arguments. I think uh, I'm gonna present the other one now. But um, you can always say, you know, the way to defend pretty much any pursuit in science is to say, okay, you know, you never know what is gonna happen. Nobody knew that uh, from quantum mechanics would ha uh, this would happen. And so I think that's I mean that's one argument to say to behind why it is good to invest in fundamental research because you know it has it has worked pretty well so far <laughs> and uh, and it gives you things that you don't expect and it's actually the only way to go beyond what you don't know you have to explore the boundaries you have to you know you cannot just focus on what you know otherwise um, you limit yourself and so I totally support and understand and well this is partly what I do the the pursuit of of um, fundamental questions um at the same time though there are more say practical questions one of them has to do i think two of them i have one has to do with propaganda <laughs> i'm gonna just say it and the other has to do with distribution of resources right then maybe let's start, let me start with the second one Let's say when people started when, to your example, when people started with your with when people starting started with you know gates and quantum computing and this stuff, how many of them were they doing that? They were doing very fundamental stuff, but how many? And what were the other people doing? Right now, more and more effort goes into these things, and so it raises the question: Are we investing the resources in the appropriate places? Uh, should we should should we maybe just leave a, a little bit the door open for some fundamental questions or uh, but invest much more in in actually making you know quantum computer or whatever happen like I, I don't know the answer i'm just i'm just posing the question i think it's a legitimate uh, question and it 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 touches on what on, on my first point about propaganda or uh, let me call it making a career in science which has to do with uh, something that we have talked about, which is 
what what makes me really do what I'm doing right now? Is it really because I believe that this is going to revolutionize something? Or is it because it is something that I can do and that I can publish something on and then I can move on? What is really what is really the, the purpose behind it? And honestly, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I don't know about you, but um, I find it hard to to clearly answer that question because I see it's a mix of motivations. It's a mix of, of, of reasons why why I'm particular, so why I'm doing what I'm doing. And, you know, if there is at least, uh, if it's at least not clear that this that I'm doing, I'm doing because I really believe in it. You know, if you really believe in what you're doing, Fine, go ahead and do it. I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna judge. Just do it. But is that really what I'm doing? Why I'm doing it? Or is it because it's a, it's almost like a comfort zone, of you know, there is a bit of risk, but not too much. So how much risk taking are we really encouraging? And how much has science become a, uh, some part of research at least perhaps a, a self, a, a purpose in itself, uh, more like a an industry of producing results that perhaps that you know uh, are, are maybe don't go anywhere, and it's not a problem. I don't have a problem with the fact that it doesn't go anywhere. I have a problem with the motivation behind doing that actual research, you know, because of course most of it is not going to go anywhere. Like that's that's per definition of the <laughs> of the pursuit of truth and knowledge and all these things. That that's not an issue, but it becomes. I feel like, and this is how it's. It's it's a feeling. I I I find it hard to put my finger on it exactly, but um, uh, it becomes an excuse for doing anything. It becomes you know you can always say oh you know, you know I know what is going to happen, uh, and it's true. But is it really what you are thinking? Is it really why you are doing that? Do you really believe in that? And that's not so clear to me. It's not yes. so clear to me on, on my when I look inside myself. And you know, ask yourself the same question. I don't know about you. Are we like, uh, um, to what extent do we deceive ourselves into into believing that? And to what extent do we really believe that? Or you know, I, I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah. I think um, what what you're saying is yeah, it's a very good uh, good and important questions. And also, they let's say what you mentioned earlier the um, the question around how resources are distributed and the motivation behind why people are doing research is kind of interlinked uh, in the way that science works nowadays, which is that professors don't really have very much money that is given to them just based on trust from the university. So if you don't work in science, maybe one, one or at least when I studied physics, I thought this is how it works, namely that when you become professor at a university, you get given a lot of money and um, that means you can employ PhD students and postdocs and they do research and they do this research that um, you as a professor believe in because people have trusted you with um, with judging what are worthwhile questions to pursue. But this is not how it works in, in most cases. So there are very, very few positions which actually work like this. and. Um, actually, I think one one good point to make maybe is that examples or one of the only examples of such positions are uh, Max Planck directors. When you get appointed as a Max Planck director, you get given a lot of resources, enough to run a whole research group for life with no strings attached. I mean, we all know that the Nobel Prize is this year. The Max Planck Institutes have been pretty successful. Namely, they have been given uh, two Nobel Prizes to, to these oh, really? places. Yeah, one one in physics and one in chemistry. You know, this is maybe a bit of an outlier example, but maybe this kind of indicates that giving people that trust is maybe not so bad, but it also needs to be based on stuff. But uh, I guess to, just to finish on, on, on the way that resources are distributed, most professors don't have very much money. Um, and so what they need to do is they need to apply for money in big research foundations like the European Research Council or the um, or national um, research councils. And there they have to sell um, their idea or advertise their ideas or the things that they want to work on to the foundation. And what the foundation does in turn, because they don't really know very much about the science themselves, they ask other scientists in the same field or in fields which are attached 
uh, to that field, whether these are actually worthwhile questions to ask. Um, it really has this, no, uh, yeah, a little bit problematic cycle of, you know, it's kind of a self, self-sustaining system because, of course, professors would like uh, their field to be supported more. And so they, they naturally try to push people who do similar things as them. There's, there's really a, a big bias in the system towards sustaining ideas which have been going on for a long time. By construction of the system, there's not really a way how you can support ideas which are actually very high risk, but maybe very promising, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's about risk taking and how mm. encouraged that is. And so I think you're, what you're, how I will understand what you're saying about Max Planck is that because of the amount of resources that you have, you may, maybe are, have the, the freedom to, to take risks, to take higher risks. But if you are not the director of the Max Planck Institute, which is almost everybody, <laughs> then imagine you see a problem that you think is very fundamental and you think it would be a worthwhile pursuit. But it's a, you know, <laughs> it's a, it's a leap in the dark into the darkness. Are you going to invest your energy into that, knowing that perhaps you don't publish anything in five years? If you're a professor, maybe you can, you know, if you don't have students, maybe you can just, just do it. If you're a student, are you going to do that? Are you going to risk not publishing anything during your PhD? You know, from time to time, there are cases like, uh, I think there was this woman, I don't, I don't know her name, but she, Apparently, she during her PhD, I think it took her it took her eight years or so on, and by the end of it, she really did something really really cool. I unfortunately I cannot say what it was. I don't remember um, something in quantum information. But those are very extreme cases, and I'm wondering, you know, not not everybody is has the personality for that thing. I don't know if I have it, but is the way things work set up such that those people that will Take those that that have the courage and the willingness to to take those risks will take them, or is the system put maybe in such a way that it's gonna that 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 motivation that that drive, mm. yeah, is the drive being enhanced or being nourished, or is or are those drives being erased because you know uh, you start being fearful of things and it's not like in the past there was no risk <laughs> there's always a risk but um i mean it's per definition a risky a risky uh, pursuit but uh, yeah what are the incentives that we have to take those risks yeah and it, it certainly seems like uh, these incentives to to work on something high risk high gain with a you know which which wouldn't produce a publication uh, for a long time, for years maybe, um, I really have the feeling that these incentives went down or the other way around. It, they're really the incentives of producing a lot in, in a very short amount of time, as in, you know, producing many publications in a short amount of time. And I mean, if you if you look back in, in history, I don't know, in the beginning of 20th century, I think it wasn't really uh, expected from a PhD student to publish anything else but the thesis itself. Uh, right. So, I mean, for example, uh, I guess even even people like Feynman, uh, I'm not sure whether he published anything else but his thesis, which was in the end a very important yeah. <laughs> contribution to science, um, yeah. an entirely new way of formulating quantum mechanics. Um, yeah. But, but I wonder me, whether me... someone like Feynman would, would, would have been supported in the way that he conducted his PhD thesis nowadays. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. That's so. The the point is not. Let me make this clear. Um, when you when we look at when we look back uh, to history, we tend to cherry pick examples like oh look at Feynman, or look at you know uh, Wilson or whoever. Um, but uh, um, uh, what we mean or what I mean is not that everybody should do that and that everybody is going to be fine, man, and that everybody that takes the risk is going to find something amazing in the end. It's a, it's a low probability event. Yeah. And perhaps there is only a, a certain amount of people that, that are willing to do it. I don't know if capable is the right word, but let's say willing to do it. Um, but the point is science 
depends a lot on on those on those people. I would I, I would claim, you know, there, there are some people that say failure goes from from graveyard to graveyard, you know, from which is I, I guess another way of saying that you know you you make a big step, then you start exploring your new models, your new theories, the things that you have explored, and then you you hit boundaries, and then suddenly somebody comes and breaks it and opens up a new a new dimension. And I, I, I do think that to a certain extent it moves in a certain way. And the other time I was comparing it to a levy flight, right? On how big jumps and small jumps. Um and you know the, the, there is there is uh, both things are important. Uh, you also have to work on, you know, uh, easier not not easier, but lower risk stuff, like developing things, expanding things. Um, but then you also need to have uh, a system that encourages those big, uh, trying out big steps. And, you know, um, do we have it in place or, or not? Are those people that have that in them, let's say, um, are they doing it anyway or are they not? Or are they being kicked out, I mean, involuntarily um, of the system because, um the way they do things, they, it doesn't fit. I, I don't know. I'm a, I'm just asking. And it seems I I ask because I see it in myself. This and I see it in everybody. This pressure to publish, this pressure to do things, and this very little incentive, or more more than little incentive. The incentive is similar. It's the disincentives that have increased to to try out crazy stuff. And and there are good reasons for it also because you know, uh, like I was talking to to a friend recently that works more in the biology field and not biophysics biology and uh, she was telling me uh, about how things go slower in that field that people publish like doing a postdoc and having one publication at the end it's normal it's great uh, if you do that so the, the rhythm is much slower at least where she is working and and my first reaction is like oh that's great because you have time to actually develop good ideas and uh, and take risks and stuff but at the same time, it's a huge risk for your personal life. Not everybody is going to be or wants to be Feynman. People are, this is also just a job to a certain extent. Uh, you have to live off it. You have a family, maybe. You have, even if you don't have a family, maybe you don't want to be exposed all the time to the risk that after one or two postdocs, you have nothing and you have almost no chance of getting a permanent position. But to go, you know, somewhere, like somewhere around the world, maybe you'll find something, certainly. The question is how much are you willing to give up? And so it's 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 perfectly understandable, and, and I do it probably too. People want to lower the risk. But at the same time, science, it's a, it's a risky enterprise. So, so I don't know, maybe it's a matter of how many people uh, want to risk it and how many people don't want to, I don't know. Yeah, certainly this this aspect of security is something that yeah kind of goes back as well to to what I was saying about you know the Magnus Planck directors where you have the ultimate security. But yeah, I think also one yeah what what has to see is that the real breakthroughs are very rarely or at least in physics are very rarely made by people who are established who are who have reached the professor level. It's it's very often that people who are now famous for a breakthrough in physics have made these breakthroughs in in the more uncertain times, maybe during the PhDs or postdocs. And so the question is also a little bit whether this uncertainty is also necessary you now, because moving around or having the necessity of moving around also means that you automatically are, are subject to a lot of different ideas, a lot of different environments of thinking. And so maybe it's just yeah, necessary for for science in a way that people move around a lot in these times, at least. You mean move around as in go to, uh, like uh, physically moving around? Yeah, and I mean this is a good question now also for these Corona times. You know, is it really physically moving around? Do you have to be physically in different places, or does it just mean you need to work with different people and 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 and, yeah, and be in contact with different schools of thinking? I don't know. I mean, to me, the physical environment actually makes a big difference. Uh, yeah, to me not, too. Yeah, it's not only talking with someone on the phone. It's not the same as seeing them every day and and you know, sharing uh, sharing a a lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. No, there are so many. It's not like we have evolved to communicate via Skype. Yeah, you know? Skype allows us to do some things, but many things 
not. I mean, it has also some advantages, of course, that you don't have to move to actually talk to somebody. But I think that if you really want to work with somebody, I find it extremely important to be on site with a person. It's just totally different. It's a totally different feeling. Um, you can, you know, from the um, efficiency aspect of like, oh, we can just comment every every other minute. We can make a remark. We can oh, we can say like, oh, look at this. Oh, look at that. You don't do that when you are doing things online. I mean, Slack, like, right? This chatting app uh, is kind of an attempt to do that, but still, it's not the same. I mean, it's pretty cool, but it's not the same. Um, and there is also uh, an aspect which I think is extremely important, which is the social aspect. Um, mm. yeah, you know, you make friends with, a, you create a relationship in a very different way if you are physically present next to the other person. You know, you can make jokes, you can, uh, you know, this doesn't happen very often in physics, but you can hug the person, you know, think of that, hugging your collaborator, <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> you know, being next to the person that like, that changes everything. Yeah. And, and also, you know, being friends with someone also means that you can do riskier things, you know, coming back to what you were saying, that risk taking is important, but when you're not friends with someone, then you it's a lot harder to take the risk of telling them about a crazy idea you had uh, because if they're not your friend then um, they might think oh this this person is not a serious scientist he's you know some crackpot or something um, but if you're friends and you know each other quite well then you know you you can you can do that and and it's it's fine to do and it's also you know when you're physically together with someone then there are also the spaces for doing that you know less formal than saying look can we do this zoom meeting i want to tell you about an idea i had that really puts it onto a very different stage than going to have coffee with someone and then you know chatting about all sorts of things uh, and then just randomly come introducing this idea yeah i mean I, I i think there are ways in which we can learn to take advantage of these online tools better like we, we would learn with time to do it better but still i think you know it's not a substitute. There is a, talking about this thing about friends. I am I I I I am one of those people that likes to create friendships with the people that I work with, or if not friendships, friendships at least something close to that. Uh, you know, it doesn't. Not every person has to be like your deepest friend. Friend, but a friend of mine tells me uh, uh, likes to say that uh, that you can all only work with friends. <laughs> it's a bit extreme, but uh, but there is some truth in that. And it has to do like one of the things, one of the aspects I think has to do with how, with trust, how, how confident do you feel that you can tell the other person ideas that you can allow yourself to express crazy ideas and to, well, to be vulnerable, to say, to express doubts, to, to tell each other about errors, how I think that I think the relationship between the people affects a lot of the level of communication. I think the other time we were talking and you pointed out something about my microphone not being very well. And I was like, and I noticed that probably I had been using it like that for weeks and nobody had told me anything. Like that's just a silly example. Yeah. But imagine something like that now that, that has that in a more, uh, um, you know, with something that has to do more with work, like, oh, there is something that I don't understand or maybe there is some misunderstanding. Uh, and I never ask because I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, whatever. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe there, maybe it's nothing. Maybe, maybe the person means something different. I don't know, whatever. And uh, and I don't ask it uh, for for weeks. And then one day I ask it, and that you know that changes everything. Now suddenly I understand things better, and now I can contribute more. It's about efficiency, I think. And um, I think at least we theoretical physicists. <laughs> um, haven't don't have enough training i would say or enough awareness of how to work well together like I, i'm not gonna say that that the people i work with are horrible and not at all i i enjoy working with whoever i'm, I'm working but I, I also think that there is a lot that can be improved on that aspect on the aspect of teamwork and project management i think the experimental the experimentalists are a little better because they are forced by the nature of their projects more than us to work together. And I, I always had the impression that they are more more of a team than we are. 
we are a little bit known wolves, um, at least you know in the field that we are working, the things that we are, that you and me are doing, and and I, I feel like there is so much there that can be learned, and I feel like there is a lot to be learned from industry, which I think has pushed the boundaries of how or has investigated that question of how to properly work together more thoroughly. And, and yeah, yeah, I don't know. I have a lot of, I have been thinking about these things for, for a while now, um, but it's hard, it's hard to implement. It's not so easy. Yeah, it's hard to implement and also how to really put a finger on what the actual problem is. Um, yeah. Because yeah. I really, I really share your, your kind of impression or the emotional feeling that you have that uh, you know work, working together in in theoretical physics is something which is not very natural there's always a little bit of a kind of a kind of a fight to um to to bring people together and to to really agree on that it's a good idea to work together now um sure. it's almost like you always have to justify why you want to work with someone now in in very objective terms you know you have to say i want to work with this person because they know this technique that i don't know and that's why i think it's a good idea to work with them yeah but yeah. but it's very hard to say it's i would like functional. to yeah i would like to work with this person because uh out of you know human reasons that you know when i talk with this person we come up with ideas together and we don't really yeah. know where the idea comes from but it just appears when we talk to each other and when we don't talk to each other these ideas don't appear yeah exactly uh, like i'm not saying that that has to be the only reason right but you know you and me are have been for a while trying to do something together but we are caught up in the paper <laughs> paper producing factory uh um, thing, um, but you know, you and me are working together not because we have particularly complementary um, to, uh, toolkits. In fact, we have very similar backgrounds, but because uh, we like each other and we like discussing and we like coming up with ideas together, it's yeah. more a personal thing. Uh, and I'm not saying that, but you know, uh, this is something that I've tried to do more and more to to share more. You know, I feel like we share, sometimes I feel like we share too little. Well, I'm, 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 I mean, and I'm not talking generically for every single team. Yeah, like how, who am I to, to judge everybody? But yeah. It's just my experience with different working environments that um, the level of communication, you know, sometimes has been okay. Sometimes has been like, oh, cool. We are talking every week once, we are sharing ideas, blah, blah, blah. But I think it should be even more than that. It should be more intense. It should be a constant stream, you know, like almost like, how do you call this? Unconscious stream of ideas. Like mm -hmm. I want to be sitting next to you and it's like being together in flow. Uh, I'm thinking of something. I just saw something. And instead of first thinking about it, developing on my own, it on my own for three days, I, I think about the five minutes and I tell you right away. And then we develop it together. And this is, and, and I've noticed it so many times that when I do things alone, I come up with ideas and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to look into this for one day, whatever. Then I get stuck. Then maybe in one week I revisit it. Well, I don't know. And when I'm working with somebody and I actually tell them the idea, it's that whole process of figuring out whether it makes sense or not and what is to do, it, it, it goes so much faster. It's so much better. Not only faster, it's so much more fun also. So much more fulfilling. So I'm a very individualistic person. Yeah, I'm. I, I'm not very. I tend to work alone a lot, but over time I have noticed that that one I work much more efficiently, and it is much more fulfilling to work with people. But you know, work with people not not as in oh I talk to you once uh, every two weeks. Actually, you know, like something more more intense, more. Um, more on a day-to-day -day basis, on an hour-to-hour -hour basis. Uh, like ideally be in the same room next to each other. Yeah, that's what I would like to achieve. And, you know, you can start with two people. When it gets to three, four, five people, you probably have to start paying attention to other aspects about group dynamics and how to communicate among each other and so on. You know, then the other, other things happen. But this is something that, at least for myself, in the way I do things, is something that I'm trying to, to do better.
Yeah, I, I've had very similar experiences uh, in the in the last couple of yeah months or last year or yeah, and and I think it's um it's it's yet another aspect of science which I'm not sure is actually encouraged in the way that things are set up right now because um, this lone wolf picture, especially in theoretical physics, is still the one which gets uh, which which is kind of stuck in in people's minds um, and it goes. It, and it has very concrete um, um, uh, consequences like, you know, people are competing for professorships or, and they're competing for prizes and, and, or, and funding and, and all of these things, they're only awarded to individuals. Like, you cannot award a professorship to a set of two people where, you know, these two people have been producing a massive amount of science but you can't really know which one of the two actually had the ideas and because you know it's so much created in 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 a kind of flow state that you were describing um and so there's yeah very very little room for that uh, left um i mean nobel prizes are also awarded to a single people only or at least yeah or a set of two or three let me say there is i have a bit of a pushback against this uh that perhaps is going to partially contradict what I'm saying, what I was saying before, because, but it has to do with where I am coming from, uh, and what I think is missing for me, because I see a lot of talk nowadays uh, about science being a, a cooperative, collective um, um, enterprise and, you know, how it's a team effort and all these things. And to a certain extent, uh, I agree. And to a certain extent, I disagree because that's where I'm going to contradict myself a little bit. It still relies a lot on individuals making, following their curiosity, making questions out of their own curiosity and trying to trying to see what is important for them, what they think uh, is not understood, what, what do they want to figure out. Putting a lot of hours and effort into that at an individual level. It still relies a lot on that. Like even if we are working together, you and me, and we are discussing a lot and whatever, and then we go home, and then I'm home, and I'm alone. And I'm still thinking of it, and I'm going to push it and push it. Why? Not because, I mean, sure, because I'm having fun with you, but because I'm into the project for, because I am interested. And it's in that, like, I think a big part still comes from the personal engagement with the, with the subject matter. It seems like a contradiction to what I said, but I think it's a combination of, of extreme Let's say, I'm going to say extreme individualism and extreme collectivism, <laughs> in a sense. You do as you, as you want. Follow your impulses. Follow your, your curiosity. Nobody, is gonna, nobody can do that for you, right? Do what you think is important, and, and, and that's where I, amazing ideas are going to come from. But then amazing ideas are going to come also from having an amazing environment. It could be a one-person environment, just a second person to talk to all the time, or it could be uh, uh, you know, a more, you know, a company or whatever that encourages things. But I think it's this experimentation, this tinkering, I think at the lower level of one person or sometimes, you know, just a, a small team of two or three people. Uh, a combination of that with, you know, the bigger part. I, I don't know if you agree with this, uh, but um, I see the, I see what you say about the long wolf and I feel it partially too. At the same time, I, I am a bit of a lone wolf and I cannot avoid it. And I don't think it's bad per se. It's just how you combine it with other things. Are you a lone wolf for the purpose of being a lone wolf or is it because that's the most efficient thing for you? Are you taking advantage of other possibilities? It's just, it's just about, you know, there are a bunch of tools, use them all. Like personally, I always, the way I work is I need to first have thought about the issue on my own a little bit at least you know, to have engaged with the things. And then when I confront other people, then I have something to bring to the table and then I can gain something from it. Not everybody's like this, I feel. I, like, I have friends that learn much more in the process of interacting with people than I do, for example. It's not, it's not that I don't learn, but like I have to do that work before myself, you know, and nobody can do that for me. Once I've done that, I can, I can or while I'm doing that, I can, I can interact with other people and then, and then things get better. But I guess the lone wolf perhaps is a way of saying independence. And independence doesn't mean being alone. It just means that, you know, um, I think that you, you don't wait for others to do something for you. You do it. 
and then you take advantage also of working with others. It's both things, I think. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. And I guess a lot of people, uh, most people um, are kind of in a different point in that balance. And so everyone has to yeah. find out themselves uh, yeah. where, where they are. Yeah. yeah. And so, so where I'm coming from is from perhaps an overemphasis in doing things on your own. So it's, it's, I think the, the, perhaps the, the error of, of mixing, doing things alone and doing things independently. You know, I'm just gonna, I mean, those are just words. Everybody understands whatever they want, but alone is really without anybody's help. And I think independent is self-driven, but that self-drive can drive you to talk to other people and work with other people. You know, to figure out, to to help, to search help in other people to help you uh, break through boundaries, to get new input from the outside. Not all input has to be self-generated. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I think that's um, it's maybe actually a, a very nice uh, point to uh, to finish on. Um, I guess it's just saying science is a very complicated effort and uh, it's not so clear also in a human sense how you can make it in the best way and uh, and people are trying and uh, to, to find out and sometimes things are becoming too extreme in one direction and maybe we discussed a couple of things which in which science is a bit too extreme right now but um, maybe other things are, are better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and just to to note to end on a positive note, uh, I'm not saying that everything is bad. You know, in fact, things were work remarkably good, uh, and you know, progress is being made and so on. Uh, it depends on what you compare it with. But um, all we're talking about is, you know, how can we th make things even better? Not from the point of view of this is bad and this shouldn't be like this. I prefer to view it from the point of view of okay, this is how it is. It's already a miracle that perhaps it worked so well. Let's make it even better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to put it. Uh, so thanks, Asia, for, for joining us here today. Um, and I guess we'll be hearing from you more uh, in the future, hopefully. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you.